means to be his disciples, living together as a church. So please follow along as I read from Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 19, to see what we can rediscover and even discover for the first time about Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 6, verse 12 to 9. This is God's word. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great magnitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and, be healed, and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power had come out from him and healed them all. This is the word of God. Amen. After reading this passage, you might be feeling the same way as I did when I first read about Jesus' ministry here, which is, so what? Yes, Jesus chose 12 apostles and continued on his ministry. Great. So what? How does this have anything to do with my life right now? And we'll often feel like this when we study God's word. And in such moments, we can, what we can do is zoom out a bit to look at the literary context of the passage. That is the context of the content that we are reading. And we can ask questions like this. Well, Luke the writer must have thought this was important enough to include this in his writing. But why? And all the more, why did God make sure that we have these eight verses written down as scripture for us to read today? Well, Luke provides his purpose of writing at the very beginning of his letter. He gives a brief testimony how he had personally investigated and checked the facts about Jesus' life and ministry. Luke then wrote this letter, which is broken down for us into 24 chapters, carefully detailing the events of Jesus' life and ministry for one person named Theophilus. This is what he writes. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So for Luke, it was important for Theophilus to read and understand verses 12 to 9 in chapter 6, because it was a matter of his faith. Theophilus needed to have certainty and to believe with certainty these things about Jesus. So Theophilus was on this journey of faith in Christ, but also with Luke. And Luke took up the responsibility to help Theophilus understand the truths about Jesus Christ with greater clarity and therefore greater conviction. This was Luke's ministry to Theophilus, to help him understand and believe in Jesus Christ. So that he could trust Jesus and continue the ministry that Jesus had started and that Jesus had entrusted to all of his disciples to continue on generation after generation of disciples. So as we discover and rediscover Jesus today, may we, may we be more certain in what Christ has done in his ministry so that we can have greater certainty in what Christ wants us to do in his ministry today. Therefore, the one thing for us today is this. Serve in the ways Jesus Christ has served in his ministry of prayer, people, and the word. Serve in the ways Jesus Christ has served in his ministry of prayer, people, and the word. Uh, we'll take a closer look at these three aspects of Jesus' ministry um, from Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 19, so we can continue to serve in the ways that Jesus has served in prayer ministry, people ministry, and word ministry. Just bow your heads with me one more time as I pray for the preaching of the word today. Heavenly Father, thank you for another day overflowing with your grace and new mercies. We pray that you would speak to us now through your written word. Help us to understand that all gifts are from, from you are good things in our lives and that you bless us so that we may bless others. 
you have said that it is more blessed to give than to receive. So as we hear your word preached, help us to go out from this place with your blessing to serve as Christ served and minister to one another as well as minister to the desperate and needy in our world for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's take a quick look at the first aspect of Jesus' ministry, which is his prayer ministry. Seeking the Father to remain aligned to his will. That was his prayer ministry. So let's unpack this by talking about what prayer is and what it is not according to Scripture. Prayer is the spiritual activity of speaking with God. It's a conversation with God. And this concept is important to first address before we continue because this concept of speaking with God does involve God speaking to us. Uh, Christians often say things like, I heard from God. I, uh, God was saying to me this or that. I need to hear from God about this particular matter. And you probably heard such statements. What people are referring to are not and should not be a literal voice booming from heaven or, uh, or even a sign that's in the sky. So let's first go over what prayer is not from our side of the conversation. Christian prayer is not a recitation. It is not reciting over and over spiritual words to God because there's no power in the words themselves and there is no formula that guarantees that God will grant our requests. When Christians pray, we are not expecting God to bend and submit to our will. So that's why if, if this is what Christians think prayer is, it's not surprising that many Christians give up on praying. From God's side of this conversation, God does not generally speak in an audible voice. I've never heard physically uh, God's voice spoken to me. In fact, no one I know who has a vibrant and intimate prayer life has heard God speak audibly. The last person I heard that this happened to was the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. When Jesus was speaking to Paul from heaven with a bright flashing light that actually blinded him. I'm sure God can make his voice audible if he wanted to, but generally I know that he does not. But how we hear God's voice is not by his sound. How we hear God's voice is by his written words. The Bible that you have access to in your hands, translated into a language that you understand, is the very tool of communication and, and the start of our conversation with God. The complete 66 books of the Bible does not have everything we want to know, but contains everything we need to know about God that God himself wants us to know. And so our prayer is how we continue the conversation that God has started through his word. So as God initiates this conversation with us, as we read the Bible, how does our response look like? How do we pray to God to continue the conversation? Well, if I could describe it, try to, it's like an honest conversation that you would have with a close friend. And at the same time, it's like a serious conversation you would have with your parent. And at the same time, it's a respectful conversation that you would have with maybe Pachokoi, if you get a chance to talk with him. Praying to God is full of thanks. It's full of complaints. It's full of requests and sharing of our most private and personal thoughts. And as we are going through the mountaintops and the deep valleys of life, our prayers should be full of our full range of our emotions. And as we speak to him prayer, what we're doing is we're directing our attention and our focus to God. That's because prayer is one of the main ways we relate with our Heavenly Father. And that's why Jesus models prayer for us and also teaches us to pray. So we should approach prayer then as one of the ways we express to God our love for God. This means how we pray to God, it shows God how we love him. The opposite of this is true as well. Selfish and self-centered prayers reveal a selfish, self-centered love for God. That we only come to God when we really need something from him. 
our reluctant prayers expose our reluctant love for God and how it just exposes us of how we are just trying to get by, going through the motions of spiritual activity. I know we would never say this to our friends. Now, I love you as my friend, but just a heads up, I will rarely talk to you. I love you, but I will only call you when I need something for you. We'll never say, I love you, but I don't really care about what you have to say to me. We would never say that to our friends. But if we're not intentionally seeking our Heavenly Father in prayer, we end up treating God this way. This is not the case with Jesus. Luke records for us how Jesus approached prayer. Verse 12 says that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And we know from the end of Luke in chapter 22 that this was part of Jesus' regular, ongoing practice of prayer. This was how Jesus regularly expressed his love for God the Father as God the Son. He regularly spent time with the ultimate source of spiritual strength and spiritual guidance as he prayed. Luke also notes how Jesus continued in prayer all night. This was something on top of regular prayer. Jesus had a special practice of prayer where he set aside special time and space to pray before making an important decision. We see this when we look closely at verse 13. Because Jesus was about to appoint 12 men from among his disciples to be apostles. 12 apostles who are going to be special messengers of Christ in history, sent out for the task of preaching the gospel, teaching both unbelievers proper truths about who Jesus is, as well as teaching believers the proper ways to live for Jesus. These apostles were going to be the first, to be the ones to first, uh, to begin the first church planting movement after Jesus ascended to heaven. They were appointed to help the first generation of churches be grounded in sound doctrine, to guard the gospel against false doctrine, and handle difficult matters of church discipline. The, they would be the ones to make sure that these first churches are healthy and that they understood how to practice their faith and live out on Christ's great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus was praying as he was one with the Father, praying for this matter. And even though Jesus has God the Son, he has all, even though he has always been one with God the Father, perfectly aligned to the Father's will, but still Jesus prayed. Jesus, as God the Son, knows everything. He has all the power, all the wisdom. He is sovereign and in control that even the wind and the waves obey his very words. But still, Jesus prayed. He prayed not to be aligned, but he prayed because he was aligned to the Father. So if we, as human beings, don't pray, what does it say about our relationship with God? What does it say about our status before our Heavenly Father? We're not praying to be more aligned. We are praying because we are aligned by God's grace. And we want to continue to remain aligned to our Heavenly Father for the rest of our lives into eternity. So we really have no excuse not to pray if we consider ourselves to be the people of God. I hope we see this, the absolute importance of why we should pray. We pray not to be aligned, as if prayer makes us a little bit more and a little bit more in tune with God. Because before we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we were completely out of sync with our Father. If God was pointing ahead, we were rebelliously pointing the other direction. If God wanted us to do A, we were ignorantly doing B. We were so far off and misaligned with God. But what did God do? He gave us faith to believe. And he removed the hostility. He removed that disconnect that existed between us and God. And it's important to understand this because our sinfulness cannot mix with God's holiness. 
There is no connection. God placed our sinfulness on Jesus Christ as he died for our sins so that we could put on Jesus' holiness like a new, fresh, clean robe by faith in Jesus. And now we are one with God the Son. And we have access to God the Father through God the Spirit. By faith, we are a new creation in Christ, aligned to the Father's will. And praying is the spiritual practice of remaining aligned with God. So if we stop praying, or if we give up on praying, or we don't see the purpose of praying, it's actually a bigger deal than we might imagine. For those of us here who have yet to believe in Jesus Christ, I just want to speak briefly to you, um, that I'm praying for you. I, I, please come talk to me, Pastor Eric, any other member of this church, and we love to answer any of your questions about how we can have this relationship with God, how Christ makes it possible for sinners like us to be forgiven and then welcomed into God's presence, to be aligned with God the Father. And I also encourage you to pray. Speak with God. Converse with him. Ask him for his guidance as you continue to learn more about how God has started that, this conversation in his written word from scripture. So for all of us, here is the first life application for us to consider from verses 12 to 13. Check the approach and the content of your prayer ministry. Because Jesus prayed and he prayed this way, we should really evaluate our prayer ministry. Do we pray? How do we pray? When do we pray? What do we pray for? Who do we pray for? And as we evaluate, I pray the Holy Spirit will expose just our view of prayer. It will expose any wrong conceptions of who God is. It will expose the, the idols that we are asking God to bend and submit to. And as we confess, commit to submit to God in prayer. Also consider where your prayer mountain will be, where you can regularly express your love to God. Will it be in the car? Ten, ten full minutes just before taking off for work, just to pray. Will it be 30 minutes at the end of the day, in the place of just unwinding with a TV show to unwind with our Heavenly Father, reading a passage and depending uh, and responding to Him in prayer. Again, there's no rule or formula to prayer. And for myself, some of my most honest and enlightening times of prayer, where I am so deeply aware of God's love for me and grace in my life, when I, these times are when I'm so frustrated. It happens when I'm just so frustrated with myself with life, how, how things are going. I feel so discouraged in my weaknesses and my failings as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a minister, that I'm just on my knees or literally just sprawled out on my floor. And the only words that I can manage to get out of my mouth is, Jesus, help me. I trust you. Jesus, help me. Here's another way to think about what we should be praying for. Think about this question. If God answered all your prayers, would it change just your life or would it change the world? Pastor Eric brought this up during our study of the text and I was just like blown away. What a thought to spend like a whole day on. If God answered all of your prayers, would it change just your life or would it change the world? Jesus' prayers changed the course of the world. So our prayers, even when we pray for ourselves and our specific needs in our lives, praying for health, praying for that job, praying for that promotion, whatever it is, when we are praying for these things, we must pray for what we need to fulfill our calling. Praying for what we need from God to be used by him to transform the world as we have been transformed by the gospel. So yes, pray for daily needs, because daily needs are important. But make sure to pray for these things with God's will in mind. Ask God also for faith to trust. Ask God for favor to carry out your God-given tasks and responsibilities. And ask God to transform the world through your life. 
So as we see, this is the first aspect of Jesus' ministry. It's a ministry of prayer, seeking the Father to remain aligned to his will. Let's move on to the second aspect. This is Jesus' people ministry. A significant part of Jesus' life on earth was his people ministry. And we'll see from these verses, verse uh, 14 to 16, how we should understand what our people ministry should be as sacrificing ourselves for the spiritual well-being of others. Let me explain why that is. Uh, to be clear, what Luke is uh, referring to, as he's mentioning these names of the apostles, he's referring to the specific office of apostles, not just apostle-like giftings that we might see in the church today. The office of the apostles were filled just once in history, and they were given a unique authority from Jesus Christ himself to teach and establish true doctrine. That even through the letters that were written by their authority, God used to provide for the church today the books of the Bible in the New Testament. So let's make a few observations on these names because at a first glance, this list doesn't look like much, right? So as we consider the professions, so let's consider first the professions and backgrounds of these men that we know from Scripture. And we'll first see that these apostles were just ordinary but diverse people of society. And Jesus still called them to follow him and even appointed him them to help others follow Jesus. So starting with Peter and Andrew, they were biological brothers. And so were James and John. And all four of them were fishermen. They were fishermen before they took up this apostolic office. Matthew, who we know as Levi, was a tax collector. Many friends who were sinners and tax collectors. And he became one of Jesus' apostles. Simon the Zealot, by this title, he was some kind of nationalist for Israel who was known for his passion for Israel's independence from Roman rule. And other than Philip, who has a Greek name, all the other names are from Jewish origin, uh, Hebrew origin, uh, other than Philip, who has a Greek name, and Thomas, who initially doubted Jesus' resurrection, we don't know much about Bartholomew, James, and Judas, son of James. So in this group of people, as we're trying to understand who they are, I want us to note who brought them all together. Jesus brought them together. He called each one by name to follow him as his disciples, and then Jesus chose each one of them by name to serve him and serve his church in this office of apostle. The bond that Jesus established among his apostles must have been unbreakable because their bond went past even political affiliations. You know, we see in countries like in the U.S. today where political affiliations can split friendships and even split family members apart. But here we see someone like Matthew, a Jewish man who was hated by his own people because he was a tax collector working for Rome against his own people. And we see him in the same group with Simon the Zealot, a Jewish man passionate against Roman rule for, over his people. This would not be an ordinary or normal relationship. Back then, as much as it would not be ordinary and normal today. So if we just take a look at one another in this room, we realize the same reality in our church. What else has brought us together into this church apart from Jesus Christ himself? Are we not random? We're so random. What am I doing here? Just think about it. Korean American from New York doing in Jakarta. We have people from here and from different parts of the world who traveled near and far, different backgrounds, different professions, different education, age groups, life stages. We have siblings in our church, family members in our church, friends who were friends before they came to church and became better friends now in our church. And we can only give credit to where credit is due. Jesus alone is the one who has united us all in him, in this local church, in this spiritual family. So I hope this makes us reconsider who we can invest in, in our church. I hope this makes us reconsider who we can intentionally try to become gospel friends with in our church. 
because it's ordinary and normal to look out for people who are just like us, who think like us, who sound like us, who look like us, and act like us. And, there, and with such people, there would be less misunderstandings. There would be less awkwardness. There would be less potential for us to get hurt. But Jesus is the one who has already brought us together into the spiritual family. And just as much as Jesus called and chose you to follow him and carry on his ministry, so has Jesus called and chosen the other people in our church that we would normally avoid. So I pray that we will consider how we can, who and how we can disciple in our church. The second observation here we can make is about the name that comes at the end of the list. Judas Iscariot, the traitor. Luke does not fail to mention that Judas is the one that betrayed Jesus, handing Jesus over to the authorities for a bag of money so that they could kill Jesus. The question here, the big question here is, why does Judas, is Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus, remain on this list of the apostles? Luke, why didn't you just put, even put Judas's name somewhere in the middle of the list? Maybe, maybe before the other Judas so that people don't realize he chose the wrong guy. Won't Judas's name add to the criticisms and the questions and the challenges to Jesus? that already exist because Jesus made this mistake that would cost him his life. Nevertheless, Luke kept the name of the traitor, Judas, here. And I think his name on this list actually teaches us so many things, that so many truths that we can apply to our church today, but I'll just highlight one. One of the reasons why I think Judas's name endures on this list of the 12 apostles is to remind us is to remind us that Jesus willingly took on sinful and imperfect people to become his disciples. There are no hoops that we have to go through. There's no standards that we have to meet in order to be with Jesus. No admission exam, no interview that we have to pass because we have all already failed every performance and character evaluation according to God's rubric. And those who are welcomed into God's holy presence, into Jesus as a disciple, are those who simply and humbly acknowledge their sinfulness and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus going to the cross was part of his ultimate sacrifice. And so was Jesus' willingness to invite Judas into his life. Our sacrifices will never match up to the sacrifices Jesus Christ made for us, of course. We're not necessarily trying to replicate Jesus' sacrifice in our ministry. But as we remember how Jesus willingly sacrificed himself for sinners like us, even for those who would betray him in the end, we receive the strength by faith to make necessary sacrifices that God calls us to make for the spiritual well-being of others. This is how we approach discipleship, starting with one another in our church and extending out to others whom God have placed, has placed in our lives. As we consider who we should disciple and how we can serve for their spiritual well-being, Let's put aside our own admission exams and our own standards that we will make them go through. I know all of us are polite enough never to say to someone, you're not good enough for me for my spiritual investments. But oftentimes, we think about it enough to the point that it hinders us from ministering to one another. And maybe we already tried being friendly. Maybe we already tried striking up a conversation in, 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 about spiritual matters. Maybe we already tried giving up some of our time and our energy to study the Bible with them. And maybe nothing came out of it, at least what we could see as a result. It can be discouraging, I know. But to those of us who are discouraged and weary of making the sacrifices again for the spiritual well-being of others, remember Judas's name. His name remains on this list, and Jesus willingly sacrificed himself 
for him. Yes, in wisdom and in prayer, at times we may feel that God wants us to move on to another person to try to disciple and help follow Jesus. And even that is a part of sacrificing ourselves to say, God, I've tried everything. I've been praying for this person. I've tried everything to just be, uh, to have a gospel friendship, to disciple this person. But I think it's time to release this person by faith. And I pray that you will lead uh, you'll bring someone else in their life to disciple them and lead me to another brother or sister that you are calling me to disciple. Even this is part of our sacrifice. Just one final thought here before we move on. I know it's common in the church, for us in the church, to think of the work of discipleship as a program, either as a class or a curriculum to go through. But please don't get me wrong. Classes and curriculums are very useful, and it's almost always a necessary starting point. But in any class or seminar that our church offers and participates in, the work of discipleship, we have to understand, the work of discipleship doesn't end when the class ends. The work of discipleship continues beyond that class. And it actually, when when you are actually discipling someone else, to put to practice what we are learning about discipleship and actually discipling someone. And this is so hard to do because that's the point where our sacrifices must come in. So here's what we can try to do as our second life application. Count the costs of following Jesus. Count the cost even again and again of following Jesus. Following Jesus and being his disciple is costly. Making disciples is costly. It's something that demands our life, our will, our all as we participate in Jesus' ministry to serve as he served. But whenever we look to Jesus, as well as that enduring name of Judas the traitor, I pray that we will never for a moment think that we are free from a life of making sacrifices for the spiritual benefit of others. And so I pray that we'll commit, every single one of us, commit to join our church, our church's efforts in making disciples. When Jesus was washing his disciples' feet, he didn't say, now that I, your Lord, and teacher have washed your feet, now others will wash your feet too. Instead, what did he say? He said, now wash one another's feet. As I served you, now serve one another. As I have made you a disciple, help one another remain and continue as a disciple and go make disciples. And a big part of our effort to disciple will be prayer. Going back to that first point. So please allocate the time in your packed prayer list of prayer topics to include praying for one another here in this church. Every single member going down that directory, praying for the members of our spiritual family. And this effort is going to be a church-wide effort together as one body that Christ has brought us together. So as we close out this part, I just want you to encourage your neighbor. Uh, you say this to them. It's on the screen. But you're going to finish each other's sentences, okay? I thought that would be appropriate. So one person will say the first line, our people ministry will be messy and costly. And that second person responds saying, that's why let's make disciples together. Can you say that to somebody? If you're online, type it out to somebody else. I know some of us, we're just barely getting the words out of our mouths, right? Maybe I should have everyone say the second line. But we are committed to make disciples together because it is messy, because it is costly. In light of Jesus' sacrifice for us, let's be willing to sacrifice our time, our comforts, our preferences even, to help one another follow Jesus better. This is our shared responsibility and our shared ministry. Lastly, we'll get into the last aspect of Jesus' ministry, which is his word ministry. Sharing gospel truth 
to sinners yet to be saved. Let me explain. Uh, first, here's a painting that captures what's going on here, just for those of you who are visually oriented. Um, just look at this, and I will reread verses 17 to 19 for us. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. If you're listening carefully, you might be wondering why I'm not calling this part Jesus' healing ministry. And there's a reason why. Um, as I've been studying Jesus' ministry in the book of Luke, I just can't call this Jesus' healing ministry because it's clear from Scripture that healing was not the focus of Jesus' ministry. Of course, yes, Jesus is powerful to heal any physical illness as well as any spiritual afflictions, and he has proven his power and his ability to do so. But these healings were never the end or the goal of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' healings were the means in the context for people to hear the word of God, God's words of life. That's why Luke notes that a great multitude of people were coming to Jesus to hear him and to be healed. If you remember a few sermons ago, we saw that in Luke chapter 5, had the clear, clearest explanation why Jesus heals and how he views healings as the context to teach people the truths about sin the truths about forgiveness, and ultimately truths about himself. This is the event where four friends their, brought their friend who was paralyzed to Jesus. Everyone expected Jesus to heal this paralyzed man. But instead, Jesus forgives the paralyzed man of his sins. And this whole event could have ended right there, but there were people in that room questioning, how could Jesus forgive sins when only God can forgive sins. You remember how Jesus responded? He said this to them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. I hope you caught that. Jesus wasn't initially planning to heal the paralyzed man according to the flow of this event. Because Jesus, because healing was never the end goal of Jesus' ministry. Jesus wanted to forgive this man's sins. But in order to teach the man and everyone else in that room that Jesus has the authority to forgive people of their sins, Jesus then decided to heal him. And then a few verses later, the religious leaders again questioned Jesus, this time for hanging out with a large group of people who they consider to be those sinners of society. So to them, Jesus responded saying, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He's referring to the sinners of society, those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That was the end goal of his ministry. Jesus saw the sicknesses of people around him, and yes, he healed many physical diseases, as well as many spiritual afflictions from evil spirits, but all of his miraculous healings serve the purpose of calling sinners to repentance. And this is because our ultimate disease is our sin. And Jesus came for us, those who are sinfully sick and hopelessly lost without him. So to be clear, I do believe miraculous healings can still happen today. Because God continues to work his mighty hand among sinners who are yet to be saved. I have heard of tumors disappearing overnight uh, by prayer. Doctors unable to explain what had happened. I've seen headaches and eye pain suddenly go away after someone received prayer from our team. But I've also seen the other side. The sad reality 
that even when people are miraculously healed in Jesus' name, the sad reality that they still reject Jesus as their Lord and Savior, even when the gospel is explained to them. Rather than studying about this Jesus, they rather ask us, what is that magical formula of words that you prayed so that I can recite it over and over again whenever I'm sick again? What's the point of being physically healed when our souls would be destined to eternity separated from God? What's the point of temporary physical healing on this earth? So our end goal must always be for sinners to understand God's word and for God to receive worship and glory from them. And for any miraculous healings that God decides to do and provide today, God will do for the purpose of allowing people to hear his word preached and taught through us, his servants, his ministers, his disciples. especially during this time, this season of just the pandemic and for our church suffering, I believe God is also working his mighty hand in our lives. So when a brother or sister in Christ is sick or suffering, of course, of course we pray asking God, can you heal my brother and my sister? Because only you can heal, Lord. God can answer that prayer. He can use doctors and nurses, medicines and surgeries and technological advancements to answer the prayers that we that, that the prayers of healing that we pray to him. But even if God doesn't miraculously heal us of our diseases and our physical conditions, even if he doesn't heal us of our mental health issues that we've been struggling with, Please, I pray that you will understand that God ultimately desires for us to live by faith in him. He desires to forgive us of our sin so that we can live with him, be with him for all eternity. And living by faith, my brothers and sisters in Christ, living by faith is often through such seasons of life where we feel like our bodies are wasting away. Please do not lose heart as you look to Jesus. Because everything we face on this earth, no matter how painful, no matter how difficult, God says it is all a light, momentary affliction that has a purpose. The purpose of preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond anything that we have faced and experienced on this earth. So we should not look to the things that are seen because what is seen is fleeting and temporary. Instead, we look to what is unseen because what is unseen is eternal. We may not receive healing that we are praying for, that brothers and sisters in Christ are praying for in our lives. But can we receive God's word by faith? Can we trust Jesus is coming soon to take us into eternity with him as he promised to the new heavens and to the new earth where there will be no more tears, no more death, no more pain. I pray that all of us can say by faith with hopeful and encouraged hearts, yes, Lord, we would rather have your words of eternal life than healing in our temporary bodies. We would rather have your words of eternal life than healing during our time on this earth, our limited time on this earth. As we realize the importance of our word ministry and how we desperately need to hear and trust in God's word, I pray that we're also convicted how the desperate people in our broken world also need to hear. Sinners among us that have yet to be saved also need to hear God's word more than anything else. Luke understood this as well. And as we close, just take a quick note here in verse 17. Where the people are coming from as they're coming to hear Jesus teach and be healed by Jesus. 
There was a great multitude of people coming from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And if you take a look at this map, it's going to be really small. But Galilee, the area where Jesus was ministering, is that middle purple area up there. And to the south uh, <clears throat> of Galilee was all Judea and the great city of Jerusalem, a very Jewish place. And to the north, uh, the dotted red line there, to the north of Galilee was a non-Jewish region of Phoenicia where coastal cities of Tyre and Sidon are located. Tyre and Sidon were neighboring cities on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and they were known in history for their trade and commerce. They were wealthy and prosperous because of their skills in building ships and navigating the seas. Yet, even they had a need that only Jesus could fulfill. We get a glimpse of these non-Jewish, foreign people groups, foreign nations, and we see how they left their wealth and their prosperity and came looking for this Jesus who taught with authority, who taught how their sins can be forgiven and who healed every illness in his authority. They wanted to know and they wanted to experience for themselves what they had heard about Jesus. So they came to him and I believe went many went back home after this day different, changed, transformed than how they came that morning. So I want to encourage you, as much as we feel like the people in our lives who are not yet believers in Jesus Christ, as much as we desperately desire for them to believe in Jesus, as much as we feel like they're so far from God, they're so far from God's truth, I hope we can pray for them by faith. Let's pray that God places in their hearts a deep desire for God that only he can satisfy. A deep desire for God's truth that, be, that they've been seeking all along. Let's pray that God will do miraculous things in their lives for the sake of their hearts being a little bit more open to receive God's eternal words. God's words of eternal life. God is the one who places in our hearts a hunger for him and a hunger for his word. And he will bring a great multitude of people from our families, among our friends, among our workplaces, among our neighbors. God will bring a great multitude of people to himself. So here's a third and final life application, which is this. Talk to someone about Jesus or talk to Jesus about that someone. Ask good questions and practice listening well when you talk to someone about Jesus. Ask them what their end goal in their life is, what purpose that they're living for. Ask them what they, what they think about sin, what they think about life after death. And listen well to what they have to say. You can also practice articulating the gospel with a brother or sister in Christ in our church. Oftentimes you have heard it said that evangelism really is just us preaching the gospel to ourselves and letting others hear how we're processing and how we're applying it into our lives. So do that with one another in the church and especially over these religious holidays, which in my experience, it, it, there are great times to start spiritual conversations with a friend or a neighbor who do not believe in Jesus Christ. So for you, that might also mean your family member or coworker over this holiday season. Listen, ask good questions, listen to what they have to say, and also share what you have learned from God's word. And then ask them what they think about as you share. And of course, speak, talk to Jesus about that someone. Go in prayer, pray for that person. Ask others in the church, can you pray for this one person? I feel convicted that God wants me to just start spiritual conversation over this next week with them. Can you pray that their heart will be sought? Can you pray that God will place in them a desire for God's truth? And pray for me that I'll be bold and loving and compassionate as I speak with them. Even to that person that you're talking to, offer prayer also in my experience, not many people will reject the spiritual help that they can get 
especially as they're suffering, especially as they're hurting, going through a difficult season of life. So ask them, this is how I speak with God. Can I talk to God about your problem? You want to listen in? So talk to someone about Jesus or talk to Jesus about that someone as we apply this last aspect of our word ministry. And so the one thing again as we close is this. Serve in the ways Jesus Christ has served in his ministry of prayer, people, and the word. Let me close us out in prayer before Pastor Eric comes up to lead us in response. Heavenly Father, we hear you. You're speaking to us. It's not audible, but it's through your written words. Just as this was a matter of faith and faithful living for Theophilus, as Luke was writing to him, ministering to him, Lord, now you're speaking to us. You want to make sure we understand, Jesus, what you have done for us so that we would take up our responsibility to follow in your ways. Yes, we'll never, our sacrifices will never match up to your sacrifices, God. But as we remember how you welcome sinners like us, you willingly take upon yourself sinners to be your disciples. May we look to you for strength. May we look to you for encouragement. May we look to you for boldness to go and minister to people as we pray, as we make disciples, and as we teach spiritual truths to those who, have, who are yet to be saved, sinners who have yet to be saved. May we go out in faith from this place. So God, help us now to respond to you as you have started this conversation. Help us speak to you from the depths of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.